Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Many agencies are still adjusting their return to office plans after a push from the Biden administration to cut back on telework. The White House says agencies should have robust ways to collect data, measure workforce productivity, and make adjustments to work settings where needed. But Congress isn't totally happy with agencies' results. They spent time this week trying to get more answers. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman covered a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing, and she filed this report. Left largely unsatisfied with the telework information available, committee lawmakers pressed harder on a handful of federal executives just this week. They're seeking more information and answers on continued telework and how that impacts both productivity as well as recruitment and retention of the federal workforce. Earlier this year, Republican committee leaders did call on agencies to share more granular data on telework and the productivity of their federal employees. But the lawmakers said they were left wanting more from many of those agencies. Many responses were, in fact, not responsive. They did not respond or severely delayed their response to this government operations request. Eleven of the 25 did not include any figures at all regarding how many of their employees were currently teleworking, either in Washington, D.C., this area, or nationwide. This lack of transparency or lack of basic knowledge the administration has about the federal telework workforce raises concerns that every single member on this committee, on both sides of the aisle, should share and be a part of. That's Texas Republican Pete Sessions. He's chairman of the Oversight Committee's subcommittee on government operations and the federal workforce. Sessions says the four agencies at the hearing this week, the Social Security Administration, the Commerce Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, and USAID, exemplified the agencies that didn't provide enough information on telework. At the subcommittee hearing, the agency leaders tried to give more information while also emphasizing the importance of hybrid work and maintaining a balance of both telework and in-person work. Telework for the federal workforce did not start with the pandemic. Many telework programs date back to 2010 and in some cases much earlier. The agency leaders said having telework programs in place ahead of the pandemic was invaluable, vital, and fundamental for continuing to work throughout the pandemic. Now, several years past the pandemic, many agencies have maintained that telework is not going away, but it'll likely change moving forward. Jeremy Pelter is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration at the Department of Commerce. The department now operates in a hybrid posture that is designed to help us retain and motivate our employees by providing flexibility to a workforce changed by the pandemic, but which also embraces the many benefits of in-person engagement and team building. Following the Secretary's return to office announcement in March of 2022, the department's headquarters saw the average daily occupancy increase from 24% in the third quarter of FY22 to now 42%, ending the fourth quarter of FY23, the most recent full quarter. The department anticipates that this upward trend will continue. That upward trend is not unique to the Commerce Department. But other agencies, like the Department of Health and Human Services, say that as things do ramp up, it really is still about that balance, as well as driving and measuring results. Bob Levitt is HHS's Chief Human Capital Officer. There is a correlation between employee engagement and the attention to employee well-being and the performance and the results that we're able to deliver. 
workplace flexibilities matter in delivering well-being, engagement for the workforce, and their ability to perform and be productive in support of all Americans. Leaders like Pelter and Levitt say that flexibility helps them remain competitive against the private sector. After the pandemic, many employees have said telework is much more important to them. And agencies say there are certain areas of the workforce where it's especially important. In just one example, military spouses, who often face unemployment when their families relocate, are highly drawn to remote work options. By keeping that in mind, Levitt said efforts at HHS to hire military spouses have paid off. Workplace flexibilities help us retain military spouses regardless of where their families move throughout the country in service to the American people. This year, we increased the number of military spouses hired by 36 percent. Despite the flexibilities, committee Republicans remained concerned about several areas. They said increased telework during the pandemic contributed to worsening agency services, as well as underuse of federal office space. Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona, pointed to a report from the Government Accountability Office earlier this year showing that federal offices in the D.C. area were at just 25 percent capacity on average. No agency of the federal government was utilizing more than 50 percent of their headquarters office space. The top quartile, average utilization rate was 35 percent. USAID and HHS fell into the second quartile, each with about a 23 percent utilization rate. SSA was in the bottom quartile of the agency surveyed along with HUD, GSA, OPM, USD, and SBA. Each of those agencies averaged 9% building utilization. That's 9%. 9%. Federal agencies spend $2 billion annually of taxpayer money to operate and maintain federal buildings and spend $5 billion more on leases. In our nation's capital, the offices are sitting empty. But it's not just about the office space. Republicans also pushed for answers on the security of systems for teleworking employees, declining productivity and services, and performance management. But on the other hand, committee Democrats say if there are protocols in place to measure productivity and hold employees accountable, then location matters much less. Jerry Connolly is a Democrat from Virginia. If your job is to write proposals to the federal government and you want a hit rate of X percent, and you exceed, meet or exceed that, I don't care if you're at home watching soap operas and in your pajamas. Keep doing what you're doing because it's the outcome that matters. Not every job can say that. Not every job lends itself to telework. But there are plenty of jobs where we can actually enhance productivity. And in the middle of a pandemic, thank God we had the structured program you described because it saved lives. Regardless of the debate, agencies at the hearing all emphasize that telework is not one-size-fits-all and not right for every position. Going forward, they say it'll be about making changes over time, listening to both federal employees and customers, and adjusting where necessary. Hank McNelly is an executive counselor at the Social Security Administration. We know that many people rely on our in-person services, while others prefer to reach us online and by phone. For example, we began offering online video hearings using software that allows hearing participation from any private location using a smartphone, tablet, or computer. Today, 80% of our claimants continue to voluntarily elect a hearing option that does not require travel to our offices. Meanwhile, we ended fiscal year 23 with the lowest level of pending cases since 2000 and are on track to reduce the average wait for a hearing decision to our goal of 270 days. This is an example of how our service is evolving and how our hybrid work approach continues to support our mission. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. And you can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.